Hi, I'm Rich Scott, the Chief Medical Officer at Genomics England, and you're listening to The G Word. Through the conversations we have on this podcast, we hope to bring the benefits of genomic medicine to everyone. Genomics is a word that can trigger really strong responses, hope, fear, anger, and there's a lot of information out there, but it's not all accessible to non-experts. We want to talk more about this word, the G word, genomics. Today, we're joined by Julia Vitarello, whose daughter Mila was diagnosed with a very rare genetic condition, and Tim Yu, Mila's doctor, who designed a medicine just for her. And we'll be hearing Mila's story and how Julia and Tim hope to help many more families access treatments for their children. As they put it, from Mila to millions. Welcome to the G Word. So on today's podcast, I'm really delighted to be joined by two people. Firstly, Julia Vitarello, whose daughter Mila was diagnosed with a very rare genetic condition, Batten's disease, and then was treated with a medicine that was made just for her. Despite responding initially to the treatment, Mila sadly died in February last year. And Julia continues to be an impactful advocate for families in similar situations through the foundation that she set up in Mila's name. And alongside her, we're joined by Tim Yu, a physician whose team went from diagnosis to treatment for Mila and has been part of this really amazing story. He's an associate professor at at Harvard Medical School, and he's also an attending physician in the Division of Genetics and Genomics at Boston Children's Hospital. So Julia and Tim, thank you so much for joining us. We're really excited to to have you to talk about about your work and to hear about Mila's story. Thank you, Richard. Thanks for having us. Julia, I wonder, many people who listening to the podcast might have heard about the story of, of Mila's life, the amazing work that Tim did to, to support you and as a family and, and also heard about the very sad end. But I wonder if we could start just by hearing from you about the story for you as a family. Yeah, you know, I I started life as a mom really like pretty much everyone else because my first daughter Mila was completely healthy, didn't have any problems, you know, was actually pretty advanced and was extremely talkative and outgoing and uh, we live in Colorado, so she was skiing, you know, when she was two years old. She was rock climbing up 40-foot, you know, walls indoors when she was two and talking up a storm. And people always looked at her because she had no hair and she looked so much younger than she was. And she had these long, eloquent, you know, discussions with people at the playground, including their parents. So obviously I was, you know, everything was going fine until she was about three and a half and she started having a few unusual symptoms that no doctor seemed to think was a big problem, but she started tripping and she had bruises like kids do, but those bruises got worse and worse and more and more. And she started pulling her toys and her books in very close. And it was unclear whether it was a vision problem. The doctor said it wasn't. Then her feet started in turning and she started kind of doing this weird little dance with her feet. And once again, you know, doctors said, oh, you know, that's just something that she'll grow out of. And eventually by the time she was five, Uh, what was kind of like maybe seemingly minor symptoms turned into clearly something was very wrong, but no doctor could figure out uh, what it was. I took her to, I think, 100 visits of doctors and therapists around the US and Canada, uh, and no one could figure out what's going on. Everything looked a little bit different. Uh, At six years old, I gave up. Uh, Things were so bad at that point. I had a newborn as well, or like, you know, a one-year-old. And I, I brought her into the emergency room, which seems like a crazy thing to do given all of her extreme symptoms, but I, I, no doctor could tell me what was going on. After a battery of tests, you know, at that point, um, in the end of 2016, it wasn't as easy as just ordering genome sequencing. It was, it, was, it was one week of hospital stay and all sorts of clinical tests. And then finally, we get this diagnosis of a rare form of an already rare disease, Batten disease. And my initial reaction was honestly relief because it had been years where I'd been thinking that I was crazy and being told I was crazy because I had such a typical daughter and I was being told that there was actually a genetic answer to it. And I didn't even know what that meant, but it was an enormous relief, you know, until I started Googling uh, what Batten CLN7 disease was. And then 
obviously my, my, my life thinking that maybe my daughter needed glasses or she had some ortho needed some orthopedic braces, you know, went to like that. My daughter was going to lose every single ability, have crazy seizures. Um, and she was going to die in the next few years. So I didn't know anything about this. I thought I had been a relatively well-read person until that moment. And I didn't know that there was such thing as a genetic disease that looked like Parkinson's or Alzheimer's, you know, or massive seizure disorders for such a young child. Um, and that's kind of how, you know, when the story kind of pivoted from there. It sounds like you, like actually sadly large number of families, you, you know, it just depended so much on you and your will to sort of really keep on asking those questions to even get the right tests done. Yeah. I mean, at, at that point, you know, I first kind of like fell on my closet floor literally and shut the door and cried all day, every day. I had no idea what to do. Um, and then after a few days, I kind of pulled myself up and I was like, I got to do enough research here to see if there's, you know, I'm being told there's nothing that I can do at all. And that no one knows anything about this disease besides like one or two people that are studying it, you know, in a lab. Um, and so I started reading and speaking with other families who had fought for their children. And honestly, almost all of them were too late for their children because at that time it was lucky if you even got a diagnosis and forget a treatment, you know, um, but they'd started foundations and they'd started um, raising money and funding researchers and, and clinicians to, to work on these diseases. And so I saw this kind of movement and then I saw these parents continuing the movement after losing their children. And it was probably the most I've never admired people as much in my life until that point where I saw these parents fighting so hard and they'd lost their children. And I, I didn't even know this world existed. And that really gave me the inspiration to start to reach out to anyone and everyone I read in every single article. I didn't understand a lot of these like white papers and I had no idea what I was reading. Eventually I started learning more and more. But what I noticed talking to various researchers, scientists, doctors was that it was a extreme long shot for Mila. They were like, you're 10 years away from this. But there was some reason to believe that we might be able to stop slow uh, genetic disease at that point. Um, and so, you know, Mila had received this diagnosis of batten and 7 but it's a autosomal recessive disease, which means that both myself and Mila's dad had to pass on a mutation in the same gene to her. And they could only find one. And the doctor said, look, understandably, um, they said, you're never going to find this other mutation because we've had a number of labs look and they can't find anything. She matches up all the symptoms. So like, just kind of rest assured, this is what she has, not rest assured. I should never use those words, but meaning we feel pretty confident this is what she has. But I started going online and looking, and this is a person who knows nothing about genetics, by the way, and interestingly found, I believe it was UCL actually, London, a database of, um, Batten disease mutations. And what I saw was two columns for the mom and the dad, like, you know, what is the mutation that they passed on to their child that had batten seal and seven? And then there was a third column and the third column were other mutations that were found um, in other batten causing genes. Now, my daughter only had one mutation. So I raised my hand and asked the geneticist, well, what if Mila had a different type of batten disease? And she just happens to have one mutation and seal and seven, you know, and they said, well, that's, that would be very rare. And I was like, please don't use the word rare with me because I already have a daughter that's very rare. So that kind of got me down the path, to be honest, to kind of figure out that whole genome sequencing, which at the time in 2016 was, there were not too many places offering that was the way to get the most answers to figure out what's going on with Mila. And I researched and could not get into any lab to have them look at Mila's genome in more depth than it had been done before. And so I posted on social media and I just said, please, there's a lab at Harvard and they do whole genome sequencing. I need my daughter. I need to find this other mutation so that I can be sure she has this disease. So I know what to go after. And I can test my son who was two years old and was normal at the time. And that post ended up um, landing on through a number of different friends on the desk of Dr. Tim Yu, who is here with us today. And that's how we got connected and how Mila's story went from, hey, let's try to use a gene therapy to replace this gene because it's the only thing that we got to actually there might be a different way to approach this. So that the story kind of really turned at that point. And I was very, very fortunate to meet Dr. Yu and his team at Boston Children's because uh, something very unexpected happened at that point. So 
Tim, it's a great time to bring you in and maybe, maybe just tell us a little bit about your your work in general, and then maybe we can hear how that was so relevant and, and important in, in Mila's story. My pleasure. So I met Julia and Mila in uh, 2017. And maybe to explain exactly the circumstances around that encounter, I will also backtrack just very briefly. I had a young laboratory at Boston Children's Hospital that uh, was constructed at that point um, on the basis of postdoctoral research work that I had done, uh, really investigating the use of whole genome sequencing to uncover genetic causes of neurodevelopmental conditions. Uh, I had a, a clinical and research interest in autism. Uh, we also had uh, been fortunate in years prior to be one of the very earliest adopters of whole genome sequencing. Uh, back in 2010, uh, we did some of the very first research-based whole genome sequences of uh, consanguineous families with autism to try and uh, uncover the architecture of that disorder. That's work that uh, had well preceded our ever meeting uh, Mila. And it was very fruitful work. And increasingly in the years that followed, we were thinking about ways to try to clinically apply whole genome sequencing to accelerate and shorten the diagnostic odyssey for patients and families, just like Julie described. And when I heard about Mila's case through this very unusual route, through social media, through Facebook, uh, this post that was forwarded to me through a, a few friends, I learned about a family that was in this very familiar situation that we know as geneticists of patients who have missing mutations. There's uh, incomplete diagnoses, a recessive disorder, raising the question of whether there's diagenic inheritance, as Julia was suggesting through her outreach to, to her clinical geneticist, or some other unusual mutation that was causing her disease. And that was an area where we uh, were focusing our lab's efforts. We we thought that we could do some productive work to use our expertise in bioinformatics and whole genome sequence analysis to find complex mutations, structural variants, insertions, deletions, rearrangements of different sorts, to try to help solve these, uh, this missing uh, mutation affliction, which we know uh, occurs in uh, approximately 5 to 10% of, of patients who receive a genetic diagnosis. So it was really on that basis that we in reached out to Julia and offered our help to her and her medical team. We had uh, a laboratory that was in the business of doing research whole genome sequencing. We could do it quickly and we could apply advanced algorithms uh, and manual inspection if required. Uh, it had the time and res resources to devote to finding these unusual mutations. And, and it was on that basis that we reached out. We really wanted to help. It was a compelling clinical situation. It seemed as if uh, her geneticist, Dr. Austin Larson at, at Colorado Children's had nailed the clinical diagnosis likely, but we simply had to look through the dark matter, the, the parts that were not covered by clinical sequencing using whole genome technology. Uh, to try and find that missing piece. So uh, that's what got us all started. And uh, I will say parenthetically, that's actually what's such a pleasure of uh, uh, about uh, coming to visit with all of you at Genomics England who, just to step out of the story for a moment, uh, I think are doing wonderful work to expand whole genome sequencing's reach to more and more patients. So kudos to all of you for that. Thank you. And it, I think it is such a, a wonderful example of where whole genome can really add value. And as you say, really, it was your skill set that you describe of the sort of the, the know-how, you know, this was back in 2016, so even more impressive, but the know-how to really delve into, as, as you say, the sort of the dark matter, the bits of the genome that aren't so easy to look for and to understand using, um, often using more conventional approaches. Um, by my understanding, you found quite an unusual variation in 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 that dark matter near the CLN7 gene that made you suspicious. Maybe Tim sort of yeah take us on a little bit more in the story and, and how that began to sort of start the conversations with, with Julia and, and the family about what might be possible once you knew that. Absolutely Richard. So we started with the the concept that we likely needed to to, to solve Mila's case by looking places where other folks had not looked yet before. Um, and as you and maybe perhaps listeners of your podcast may, may know as well, traditional clinical sequencing in years past has always focused just on the protein coding portions of genes. The 1% of the genome that actually encodes for an amino acid that directly contributes to the structure of a protein, an enzyme, a structural gene 
um, that does some cellular function. And what we knew we needed to do was to analyze that, but also to look carefully at the bits in between, the intronic sequences, the non-coding sequences, uh, previously called junk DNA. Uh, but we knew that these sequences contain uh, biologically relevant elements that actually control how genes are assembled, how the instruction set is put together to make the final protein. And we did that. We took uh, a look and we performed whole genome sequencing of Mila, uh, her mother, her father, as well as her little brother. And we looked for something that might have been missed in those dark regions of the genome. And we found something quite unusual. Uh, we found something that was actually difficult to interpret at first. There were a series of DNA fragments that appeared on our screens deep a thousand letters away on either side from any portion of the gene that actually coded for protein. And these sequence bits were uh, unusual because they didn't fully match the reference genome at that location. What was distinct about this group of sequences is that they began with sequence that matched the reference human genome, and then they diverged into foreign sequence that did not belong. And more strikingly, there were two subfamilies of sequences that looked like this. One that began with reference sequence and then trailed off into foreign sequence. And then one that began with foreign sequence and then trailed off into reference sequence, switched over into recognizable reference sequence. And this is a signature of a type of event that could reflect something complicated going on, not like a single letter substitution in the genome uh, or uh, in, you know, an insertion or deletion of a small number of, of bases or letters. Uh, but sometimes you see this pattern if there's been something, uh, what's called a translocation, where you know, one segment of the chromosome gets broken and then attached to a different segment of uh, a different chromosome. Or as it turned out to be the case in this particular instance, something even rarer than that, perhaps, so a, an insertion of a foreign piece of DNA, a mobile DNA element, something that in the lingo we call a retrotransposon. Retrotransposons or mobile DNA elements are these evolutionary viruses that have landed in our genomes at some ancient ancestor of humans, and they, like viruses, propagate. They can copy and paste themselves into new locations in the genome. And they've done so on a timescale that's you know, hundreds of millions of years. Uh, they've landed in our genomes in various places at various times in evolution. And uh, they are responsible actually for a surprising amount of the DNA that resides within our genome. The mobile DNA element that we found in Mila's genome was from a family of these elements that's actually relatively young, uh, a family of these elements that only appeared in uh, non-human primates. And they're found in copies, uh, in about 3,000 copies in our own human genomes. And one of them had unluckily copied and pasted itself into the middle of the gene that causes CLN7, that disease. There it was deep within a non-coding part of her gene, far away from any bits that are traditionally interrogated in clinical sequencing, which explained why no one had found it before. And when we looked to understand what it was doing to the gene, we realized that it was the smoking gun. It was the cause of her disease. It was the second missing cause of her disease. It created essentially a new splice site that induced the cell to connect a protein coding part of her gene to a nonsensical part of that uh, inserted sequence, um, such that the gene became broken and couldn't be read faithfully. This event, the hijacking of the normal splicing or assembly process that builds her gene into a functional protein uh, was the missing second cause that her team had uh, unsuccessfully tried to find before. And I know that when, when you found that very quickly, in your mind, you could understand that there was a, that, that led to the potential for a treatment. I wonder whether, Julia, the good to hear about so how you know this process felt for you as a family and the sort of journey you went on when you heard about this possibility and and the sorts of things that, that made you think about yeah you know i i just had mentioned earlier that when mila was first diagnosed 
you know, there was a barely even a name of a person to contact to find anything out about this gene because it was um, just so incredibly rare. There had been, you know, an estimated, I don't know, 25 children known, known cases around the world with this. So, um, and being told that we were 10 years away from even thinking about a treatment, I would say that, you know, at first I learned about gene replacement therapy, like I mentioned earlier, and that's what the goal of my foundation was initially for this first, you know, month getting going. And to even think about any treatment was a, seemed like a miracle. But then to learn um, what Dr. Yu was doing with his team and learn that there was this possible, at that point, it was a possible other approach. Suddenly I found myself, you know, four months after Mila was diagnosed, faced with two possible ways to treat this disease. And then I started hearing from geneticists and researchers and doctors that this wave that was rising in genetic medicine was actually rising faster than they ever expected. And it was kind of just at that time for when Mila was diagnosed. Um, so suddenly I was faced with these two options and I started learning more and more. Dr. Yu and his team really included me a lot in trying to explain very complex things <laughs> to someone who doesn't know a lot about you know genetics and medicine. And I started understanding that it was kind of a long shot because it was, you know, new, but that it was based on a drug which had been used for another terrible degenerative disease in children and spinal muscular atrophy. And there's this drug Spinraza and that that at least had shown great promise, you know, for many children. And as time went along and more studies were done with Tim and his team, we started to see that Mila's cells were responding very well, you know, to this, this antisense oligonucleotide, which they had designed. So it went from like a hypothetical to like a real case of this actually is checking a lot of boxes. And then I also noticed that, you know, Tim did an incredible job of bringing people in. And I noticed that so many other researchers, clinicians, um, companies started really getting on board to help this happen. And when I saw that momentum happening, I realized this can't, this can't just be like a, like a long shot idea. There's a reason to believe that this should help. You know, people really, they, they're seeing the boxes being checked. And so I learned that there were decades of work on animals with this type of medicine, which like I said, I was not in this world, so I didn't know much about this, but I did know that there was decades of work and that this was not voodoo science. There was not potions involved, you know, and, and feathers and stuff. And so it looked to me, the more I understood, and I read a lot about it, that this was like a legitimate shot for Mila and she was still laughing. She was still smiling. Everything was getting harder very quickly. I watched her over the course of the year since meeting Tim lose her, you know, she had lost her vision completely at that point. She lost her last words. You know, she said mommy for the last time, which was one of the like most just horrible experiences ever to not have your daughter be able to, you know, tell you, like she tried to say, I love you. And then it just broke up and she couldn't say it anymore, but I could see she wanted to, you know, and I watched her have seizures for the first time and choke on her food and have to turn her upside down and hit her on the back. Um, I watched her arms and legs flailing, smashing into everything. And poor Mila was like covered in bruises and was trying to find a way to pad everything in my house, you know, and I saw this happen in just the course of like one year, you know, not even one year since her diagnosis, but yet she was still like bright eyes and like listening and laughing at all her favorite, you know, stories and songs. And so there was a reason really to believe that like, if it looked as good in the lab, we don't know what's going to happen in Mila, but we've got to give it a shot. And so I was just very, very fortunate that Tim told me very clearly, like, if there's a closed door at some point, we're not going to be able to go through it. But the doors kind of kept opening and that he was very helpful in explaining, like, you know, Mila's cells are dying. You know, her neurons are dying. Some of them have already died. Some are in the process of dying and we might be able to stop that. Some are in the process of dying and we won't be able to stop that. And that helped me, that image, to be honest, helped me more than anything, go in with the correct expectations. Um, I never thought twice for one second about whether to do Melisin because it seemed to me that there was really scientific reason to believe that it's worth a shot. And the, the risk of not treating Mila was black and white. She was going to lose all her abilities and she was going to die. The risk of treating Mila was um, an, a, a bit of an unknown, but it was also a pretty calculated unknown. And to me, when you look as a parent at those two, it's pretty obvious. It takes you 0.1 seconds to realize that 
the risk of treating Mila is significantly less than not treating her. So that was how I went up to it thinking like, let's do this. You know, and I tried my best to compliment Tim and his work and send letters, you know, to the FDA, you know, not screaming and crying, but saying, hey, this is where Mila was two months ago. This is where she is now. And I listed steps and talking and seizures, you know, and suddenly Mila went off a cliff that was very typical of Batten disease about two months before Mila sent, you know, and I mean, I'll never stop thinking about what happened if Mila were to receive this, you know, six months before or two years before or at birth, who knows? And the only way to know that, to be honest, is to treat more children and to try to learn at what point do you need to intervene and which parts of the brain are you know, being helped, which diseases, which children. And so Mila showed us that, you know, when she was treated, that her symptoms absolutely like stopped for a year. You know, and so that alone at age seven for Batten Seal and Seven, which is pretty progressed, is incredibly encouraging. You know, I went on a roller coaster ride as a result. I crashed down with her diagnosis. I went up with her potential of Melison and I stayed up for a while. And when I saw that, you know, for a period of about a year, that Mila's seizures that had been pretty out of control and had lasted two minutes, you know, and there was 20, 30 a day were down to nothing sometimes. And if they were, you could barely notice them at all. That she had had a G-tube put in, that she was receiving her food, her nutrition, her water, and that she was back to eating pureed foods. You know, it's not like she was back to eating normal food again, but she was eating pureed food by mouth, you know, and, and being able to taste it and enjoy it. She was um, smiling and laughing more. She was sitting up much more straight so she could sit um, kind of unattended and she could lift her feet up the stairs alternating once in a while with me holding her from behind, you know, supporting. And so I noticed not only a stabilization, to be honest, but like improvements. And that was really amazing and, and kind of shocking in a way. I didn't necessarily expect that. Um, and then after a year, I started noticing that like maybe things were getting worse. It was very subtle. So it was very hard to tell. And then by the third year, I could see that, you know, she was not as responsive her hip had come out of the socket, which was something that does happen to some children with Batten disease. And that, um, you know, was a disease progression and, and it ended up, you know, ended up playing a role in kind of the end of her life as she was in a lot of pain and would, would have required a massive surgery breaking her bones. And, and so I saw this, that the disease had progressed. And I realized that at that point in the third year that, you know, we were not in time and that that was something that Tim and I had spoken about obviously going into Mielison. So, you know, I went on a, a very big roller coaster through all of this. It's just so heartrending to to hear about and thank you for being brave enough to to share that that with us. I guess one of the things that is just so striking and I don't know a lot of people listening probably don't realize but you know quite how pathfinding you guys were. I mean, as far as I understand, this is the first time that anyone had had a sort of individualized treatment like this. And so I, I guess as well as all of the uncertainty, I, I imagine you must have been going through all sorts of sort of roller coasters as well as you navigated the sort of regulatory and all of those other steps. Can you just share with us just what that sort of process was like and how, you know, what were the barriers that you you guys faced and had to get through? Sure. So let's start with the science. When we first saw Mila's mutation, we saw that it was a splicing mutation. We saw that it was creating a new splice site and it was corrupting the code. And we also saw the really interesting accompanying fact that the, the normal genetic code to make a functional CLN7 gene was remained intact. It's just that there was an intervening sequence in there created by her unusual mutation that was interrupting it. And so first we had to wrestle first with the conceptual possibility. Can we actually fix this? Is there a biological way to fix this with technology that we got in hand? And uh, we were aware of this technology called antisense oligonucleotides. And we were waiting for this technology to bear fruit. Uh, it had shown great biological promise for decades, but its clinical successes, it hadn't had a one true clinical success yet. Uh, but fortunately for us, right at the time when we were looking at this unusual mutation that we discovered in Mila, um, as Julia mentioned, there was this wonderful clinical success of uh, trials of an investigational agent called Spinraza or Nusinersen for spinal, spinal muscular atrophy. And this was an antisense oligonucleotide drug 
that successfully changed the splicing pattern of a critical gene that ended up benefiting a lot of infants with this really devastating and fatal progressive disorder. So the first piece was this recognition that her mutation that we discovered by whole genome sequencing could actually be amenable to that same kind of strategy. And uh, we were fortunate to have that line up for us and to recognize that possibility. The second was, well, could we actually make this ourselves? Because when we thought about who would actually be able to make such a drug like this, drug development, as you know, is something that's typically done by companies. It requires large efforts, large teams, uh, lots of venture capital funds. It's a serious business. It remains a serious business. The question is, would anyone ever contemplate doing this uh, for a patient mutation that we had only found once? And actually, at that time in 2017, we had only found it in Mila. And actually, to this day, we've not found it in any other patient with that disease. And so it was quickly explained to us by folks in industry in the field that 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 uh, one cannot support drug traditional drug development for an N of one. In fact, if you ask folks where, where's that hard edge cutoff where you actually could raise some money to support a drug development effort, people might say about a thousand or so, although we're seeing that creep down a little bit. So the question was, well, could we replicate some of that process um, ourselves? And we set about to go re going and reading the literature and finding out everything that we could about how this technology is actually implemented to make drugs like Spinraza. And uh, we were lucky because uh, the expertise required lined up with uh, molecular biology, cell biology, and neurobiological expertise that we had in the laboratory. So that was sort of step number two. Uh, was there a, a plausible path to actually replicating that design process in our laboratory? And so we were lucky to do that. I'd say that uh, you know we had um, unusual success. Science usually uh, is a, an effort that fails 90% of the time, uh, and things take always th three times longer than you actually project them to. And this was one of those rare projects where in the first six months, we actually were able to show that we could design a proof of concept ASO, get it to work, uh, make Mila's uh, cells in the laboratory, cultured and growing in the laboratory, treated with our experimental, experimental drug, actually look healthier. And then the question became, could we actually ethically and with sufficient scientific assurances present this to the family as a plausible intervention? Could we actually offer enrollment in a trial based off of this? Because there are also sorts of unknown unknowns in an effort like this. And what you can, I'm, I'm sure, tell from uh, hearing from Julia speak is we were really fortunate to be working with a family uh, that could be very clear-eyed with us and about the risks and the benefits, about the, the prospects of treatment as, and compare that against the prospects of lack of treatment. And also the, to be tolerating of the risks and the unknown, uh, impossible to quantitate risks that, that we would be encountering. And you know, it, it was really our, our, the relationship we developed with family and appropriate consultations with our ethics colleagues and others at the hospital that uh, allowed us to advocate as strongly as we did to, to get this through. And then that, that last piece, which is not insignificant, was to assemble the regulatory and also the manufacturing um, and uh, toxicology know-how to navigate that critical part, which is making a, a clinical grade drug out of this uh, experimental agent that we had piloted in the laboratory. And for that, we had uh, a lot of, uh, we were fortunate to be connected to some uh, wonderful uh, partners through the Oligotherapeutic Society. Art Krieg connected us to uh, a variety of scientists, including Frank Bennett, um, Frank Rigo, many others in the field, Richard Finkel, who had run trials of antisense oligonucleotides before. And they were able to provide us with the guidance, um, as well as critical regulatory input and strategic input from Lauren Black an ex-FDA veteran herself, um, to um, solicit and obtain uh, regulatory support and industry support to, to make the drug and, and to uh, get the IND filed and approved. It was the lining up of lots of different uh, doors opening just in time for us to, to navigate them on behalf of Mila. It moved incredibly fast. I always look and, and look back and find you know, areas where we wish we could have shaved off a couple weeks here maybe one or two months there. Uh, but all in all, it was a really uh, fortunate and highly collaborative effort that, that landed us to, to being able to offer this.
And as Julie described, um, we saw actually evidence that it, it appeared to be working. Uh, within the limits of a single patient study, um, we saw improvements in seizures and frequency and duration, uh, as well as the reports of these quality of life improvements that only a family could pick up, uh, but are incredibly important in, in building a case for impact. We have faith and belief that this type of work, you know, it absolutely deserves more exploration. Uh, it shows really great promise. It's an yeah, it's an amazing story, and one of the one of the things that we actually heard about on this podcast a, a few months ago, I was lucky enough to talk to Stan Crook, one of the sort of people behind Spinraza, the um, spinal muscular atrophy treatment that that you mentioned, and was so crucial in sort of paving the way for Mulesen. I know Julia through Miller's Miracle Foundation. You know, what, even before you knew about this potential avenue, you were thinking about how you know you create a path to to treatments um, and so on. And I know that's your um, continuing passion. It'd be really good to hear from you about yeah, what what are the, the big areas that you're really focusing on? What are those big barriers that you're grappling with? Yeah. Going into Mielison, I think Tim and I, I mean, certainly Tim and his team had it head down, like working as fast as they could in the safest way possible. And, and I was trying to help where I could learn, help make decisions, take care of Mila, take care of my son and magically raise a lot of money to support a lot of the work. And I didn't have time until I really, honestly, until I was kind of walking the back hallways of, you know, Boston Children's Hospital when Mila was being treated to really digest the fact that not only was Mila receiving a treatment and that it was targeted to her unique mutation, like the underlying cause of her genetic disease, which in itself, I couldn't even, my, my, my brain was spinning. You know, I, I didn't understand how that was even possible. But then I realized that, you know, Mila was the only person receiving this medicine and that, you know, Tim had said, Hey, you know, we're naming this drug Milicin and showed me the little vial, you know, that said Mielicin on it. And I don't think it really hit me until then that we had not set out to be, you know, the pioneers of individualized medicine. And we didn't even think about necessarily, or I speak for myself, I didn't think about the fact that, you know, Mila was going to be the first person in the world to receive a drug tailored just to one person. But that's how it happened because there is, like Tim said, there was no one else out there that shared her mutation that we can find yet. And so I think as Mila was, you know, I was really shifting my focus in the first year to kind of taking care of Mila and watching her and, and being with her. And, and I think it really hit me over the course of that year, the possible ripple effect of this across genetic medicine, because I was receiving, you know, eventually Mila's story was in the limelight. We waited quite a while, actually, to be honest, before we talked to anyone about it and Tim presented it and, and published on it. Um, but once that happened, families from all over the world across, you know, every disease would reach out to me and I would hear these stories like mine, you know, and children were, were, were taking down their whole family, not purposefully, of course, but like these parents were taken out of society. Their siblings were given no attention. These children were eventually dying. Their families were having to learn how to live without their child. The siblings, you know, are missing missing their sister or brother. And it was so devastating. And I started learning the numbers and seeing that we were talking about tens of millions of children just who would die before five, you know, that had rare diseases, most of which, almost all of which were genetic, you know, 80, 90% of them were genetic. And, and so it really hit me like, why is no one out there talking about this in a way where like, this is a global health crisis. If you ask me, we're talking about tens of millions and hundreds of millions of children that are going to, you know, live excruciating lives or die, you know, prematurely. And we're going gene by gene right now for luck. If you're lucky, if you're lucky to have a genetic treatment, you're going gene by gene. And that's, you know, 5% of these people have, you know, any sort of treatment whatsoever. And some of them work and some of them don't. And so this individualized approach, you know, really targeting in Mila's case, an individual single mutation seemed to me like I'm no expert, but it seemed to me as like, wow, this could actually be an entirely different way of treating genetic disease. And it could have a really huge impact. It could be a part of the solution to this gigantic, you know, global health crisis problem. And so, you know, I started 
working together with Tim and together with many other people who obviously want, like Tim said, to explore, and I would add the words in, safely and aggressively explore this path because, you know, the risk of not treating these children is that they are they are going to live short or, and or very difficult lives along with their parents and their siblings and their grandparents and aunts and uncles and communities. And each child, which is different than an adult, each child has at least two, three, four, five people that are in it every single day with them. And so we're talking about hundreds of millions of people that are being affected by rare genetic disease. And I think that we need to question the drug development process, which was not intended for drugs for one or two or five or six people. We, you know, the drug development process was, was, was designed or naturally evolved to target, you know, one drug for hundreds of thousands of people. And now with Mila's story, we are imagining a future, which is already happening now, but a future of potentially hundreds of thousands of drugs targeting just one or two or six or 10 people, you know, and that's, that's very different than how we develop drugs right now. So I think it requires us to go back and rethink all of the aspects of that drug development process. One of them, which has just been talked about briefly, is the regulatory path. We can't bring like one child across the bridge at a time back and forth. And each time it's $2 million, two years, you know, a thousand page IND and, uh, you know, a massive team of people within one academic institution, not to mention other companies and other people out externally. It's just, that's too much. It's not going to ever scale. And we're never going to be able to get individualized treatments, starting with ASOs to the children that could benefit from them. And we need to move towards allowing families who do understand the risk benefit analysis um, and who decide that the risk of treating is lower than the risk of not treating together with their physicians and the team who are designing these, in this case, ASOs. And we need to have more children treated so we can learn more. We can learn about dose, about route of administration, about which diseases um, are more amenable, which parts of the brain are more amenable, which, you know, there's only one way to do that. And um, I think we need to do that. So one of the things that we, that, that Tim and I, as well as Oligonucleotide Therapeutic Society and Chan Zuckerberg Initiative and some others have gotten together to create this N of One Collaborative, which is really a hub for, supposed to be kind of the hub worldwide for talking about, you know, how are we going to make individualized medicines routine? And, and so that is one initiative. And I might take a pause there and let Tim actually intervene because he really kind of heads this effort. And this is one of the places to respond to of that I am putting my efforts in because I think this hub is kind of the base of the house to really move from what I like to say from Mila to millions. This is the base. So I don't know, Tim, if you want to add more about the N of One Collaborative. Thanks, Julia. I, I, I think the premise of the N of One Collaborative is the following. Let me start with the name, the N of one. The N of one sort of lives, it serves a, a dual purpose in the name. Um, on one hand, a lot of the attention around Mila in this case, the extraordinary attention around this case is focused because it was about a single child uh, whose uh, case was so compelling that it really um, was a, a large part of the impetus behind this first effort. But as Julia mentioned in the phrase, you know, from Mila to Millions, that the N of One Collaborative is really about expanding this effort to many, many more patients, not just because one of some natural source of ambition from the, the participants, but because it's required, it's necessary. The reason I say that is that folks know well, there are these amazing advances in, in genetic technologies that allow us to intervene uh, for genetic diseases as never before. We're talking about ASOs, but we could also be talking about siRNAs. We could talking we could be talking about mRNA replacement therapies um, as the vaccines and the COVID crisis have shown um, are so critically important for future therapies. We could be talking about CRISPR genome editing. And the point which is not lost on anyone, I believe, is that these are exquisitely powerful but also exquisitely precise tools that work at the level of often individual genetic variation. 
Therefore, in order to use these tools, the interventions are, by their nature, going to have to be individual because they target individual genetic variation, which then creates the challenge, which is that as drugs are increasingly individualized for, for individual specific variations, how do we actually think about organizing um, trials? How do we think about organizing approvals? Um, how do we uh, think about learning about these class of interventions? Clearly, we can't run a trial for every individual intervention. That just doesn't make any sense. Uh, so we have to find ways of grouping them to make this problem tractable and to scale this. And that's what the N of One Collaborative is about, finding ways of coordinating efforts to, to group uh, what are ostensibly individualized trials into something that's bigger, where the, the sum together uh, adds up to more than just the individual parts. So that's the, the proposition. Now, where do you start? Well, right now we're starting with antisense oligonucleotides because that's uh, arguably the most mature of the of the technologies, the platform technologies that we're describing in this way. And um, going from the specific to the general, I, we have to find ways of, of uh, making the development of these more efficient. Um, and that includes technical advances, but it also includes operational advances and even structural advances. The machinery for developing a clinical grade drug is built around the idea of large trials that might enroll hundreds or thousands or tens of thousands of patients. Uh, that includes manufacturing, safety testing, uh, even the fin financing schemes for supporting those efforts. They're all really large sized and they don't fit well um, this sort of nano small, uh, these really small trials, N of one or N of small trials um, that are gonna be required, are required to get off the ground. So there's process innovation that has to happen there just on the delivery side. It's also gonna require a lot of careful clinical trial uh, design rethinking. We've talked about ideas of umbrella trials or basket trials to try to group different indications and different drugs together in logical ways so you can extract meaning from disparate interventions and group them all together. Um, and there's work from uh, many folks that I think uh, is going to advance how we think about organizing these trials under those constructs. Third, we're also thinking uh, about ultimately approval and re regulatory approaches towards these. It's one thing to say we're going to move away from a one drug at a time model, but it's another thing to define what the size of the group should be. Should there be a, uh, approvals for a series of drugs offer one disease, a series of drugs offer one indication like seizures, or an approval for a, a, an entire process for making drugs no matter what the indication. You know, those are just three possibilities of varying levels of aggressiveness with different pros and cons. But they're sort of unanswered questions. And no one's going to pretend that the answers are going to come quickly. But thinking about how to match the trial design towards the ultimate approval goal, uh, I think is important to do up front. The last two points I'll just mention to broaden even further, we recognize that being able to find these patients in a timely fashion is the root of it. And as our experience with Mila showed, an intervention which showed good clinical and scientific promise and some early response ultimately uh, didn't have the outcome that we wanted. We lost Mila because we started too late. And that's why, you know, shortening the, continuing to pressurize this, this finding solutions to, to shortening the diagnostic odyssey. And really, I personally believe that, that doing this in newborns and finding ways to responsibly collect genomic information, even in newborns, such that um, it's available when you need it uh, so that you don't end up spending unnecessary cycles waiting for a diagnosis, at, as in Mila's case, that's got to be critical to the problem. As a side benefit, if you do that with whole genome sequencing, it actually turns out that whole genome, one of the superpowers of whole genome sequencing is that one can, you often need whole genome sequencing to find the kinds of mutations that you can make drugs like Mielicin for. Most of them are deep in the non-coding regions of the genome that are not, are not currently being sequenced unless you do whole genome sequencing. And so I, bringing this back to Genome England and uh, that, that type of effort, I mean, I think that that's one of the bases of the house for sure.
Thank you for that. And and thank you for, so, I think, orientating people in this extraordinary world that I, I feel in my career as a clinical geneticist, when I started, you know, I, I had no concept that this, I think, Julia, you called it a wave earlier, this wave was coming. And, and it's so sort of recently, really, that I think many of us have sort of appreciated that this isn't something which is just there in sort of, you know, something that people talk about about being five or 10 years away you know for some families this is thankfully there and as you say like the work that you guys are doing uh, it's just an extraordinary story thinking about how you sort of through such hard work such painstaking work as sort of thinking about how we can grow that from what is still such a small number of families who are benefiting to as as you say mila to millions is just it's a phrase that's just so powerful i think um, one a question from me, as you, you Tim, uh, alluded to sort of our work at Genomics England, as, as you guys know, that at the moment one of the things we're doing is designing a research program to explore what the potential and the value and the complexities um, and downsides of, of carrying out whole genome sequencing in in all newborns would be. One of the real balances is is understanding that these are thankfully rare events. And the, the the story of the long journey, Julia, you you to even to get people to listen to you was sort of so excruciatingly long. And yet there's still a balance of sort of giving families, for example, a you know, period of peace of time, peace of mind and or, or not worrying unnecessarily. And Julia, I'm interested to understand sort of your view, having been through the journey you have on if you could have been told very early, you know, clearly before had any symptoms maybe even in the first couple of weeks of life about what was found with a level of confidence how would you feel about that is that something you would have wanted to know or what what does that make you feel yeah it's it's a really good question um i think that if that question were posed to me in 2010 when mila was born um it would be a hard one to answer because I don't necessarily, Spinraza had not been approved. A lot of what we did with Mielison was based on that. Um, I'm not sure that an individualized antisense oligonucleotide would have been a possibility um, at that point and whether or not um, her mutation would have even been found, to be honest. And so that would have been a hard one because I did get, looking back, I did get the chance to have six years with Mila where I didn't think she was going to die. And that, that, um, has an enormous value. I got to be a mom and become a mom and enjoy my extremely healthy, seemingly healthy, outgoing child and, and do all the fun things you do with your child for the first, you know, I mean, it was hard for her at five years, but even the five, six years of her life. Now today, knowing what I know, um, the answer would be yes. I would absolutely want to know because right now, knowledge is very powerful right now. And it is in the case of Mila, their batten seal and seven is not screened for at birth because technically there's not a treatment for it. Now there is a gene therapy right now that's in kind of phase one, two that I helped start. Um, and it's very unclear yet whether that's helpful or not, just like a lot of rare disease treatments, there are early stages and we don't know. Um, but seal and seven was not on there. So one could make the argument, why should you um, test meal at birth if there's no way to treat her? But what we learned about Mila's story is that by finding her underlying genetic mutation, that in turn opened up a pathway to a treatment. That is not true for all children, but there is a reason to believe that there's some estimate, you know, Tim would know more than me, but between, you know, two and 12% of, of these monogenic diseases, you know, might be mutations that are amenable to an ASO like Mielicin. That adds up to be a lot. We're talking about tens or hundreds of millions of people that have rare genetic diseases. The numbers are not small. They may be individually small by disease, but they're massive. In fact, statistics show with like global genes that rare genetic disease is actually bigger than, you know, cancer and HIV combined, you know? So it's a huge, huge problem. And if even 1%, even just a conservative 1% were amenable to a, a drug like Mielicin, wouldn't that be worth knowing and being able to have access to a treatment like that? And it all starts with you know, sequencing and ideally whole genome sequencing, because as Tim said, that's often what gives us the information about whether or not um, someone might be amenable to um, to a treatment like Mielicin. So for me, the answer would be today, 
yes, being whole genome sequenced at birth not only helps answer a question of symptoms that would be the symptoms to come and connect you with a community of people so you can get a better understanding of that disease and how to treat it and how to live the best life possible, but also could lead to a path to a treatment. And that's enormously important and helpful today. So I think what you guys are doing at Genomics England is the not only an amazing tool at diagnosing, but because of Milo's story, you can see now that it opens up now a pathway to potentially treating many, many people with rare diseases. Thank you. Now, I'm very aware of the, the, the time and we've had a really wonderful conversation. I wonder, um, Tim, I'd just be really interested on sort of your views on that sort of that same sort of question about thinking about not just responding to children when they have very clear problems, but sort of that that, that pre-symptomatic sort of um, setting. I know you were involved in early on setting up BabySeek, but also um, just sort of for your brains, as Tim's saying a few words, just in uh, any other sort of closing thoughts that you guys wanted to share, perhaps any any areas that we haven't touched on that you you really think our listeners should hear? I, I might say the following. I might say that, uh, that advances in the field, uh, individual stories like Mila's, uh, much uh, other, many other successes uh, by many other people in the field have shown that the interventability of a genetic diagnosis, the value of a genetic diagnosis has never been higher uh, because it may open a path towards an approved treatment. Uh, there are still too few of those, but increasingly it may open a path to an, towards an investigational treatment. Uh, in some unusual circumstances, it may be even open a path towards uh, a Melison-like treatment. And that value will constantly change with the time, but its value is only increasing. I'll also say that um, in order to test if these therapies work, there's also a bit of a chicken or the egg problem. Um, there are many very promising therapies that might not show positive clinical trial results because they're applied too late. And that creates a bit of a conundrum. We have to, to solve that by identifying the patients early enough so that the therapies can be developed successfully so that they can be approved, which then justifies the earlier diagnosis. So that's a cycle that we have to decide at what point is the right point to responsibly intervene and to just say, it's now time to begin looking for these patients. We'll continue to navigate that. Our ability to predict whether or not a diagnosis leads to a treatment will only improve. And there may be different answers for different families, but I, I do think that having the option of that, having that information available early is going to be increasingly recognized as an important option. Thank you. And I think one of the one of the things I, I feel to, talking to, to you, hearing from you, Julia, is that it's so easy for clinicians, not you, Tim, <laughs> clearly, but many clinicians to feel is that it's so easy to accept the status quo as the medic, as the scientist. And not to show the bravery that families show in navigating these challenging problems. And as you say, these things are a journey. It's not that there's suddenly a switch that someone should flick and suddenly we're in a different place. We do need to navigate these things responsibly. But the thing that talking to you today and I, I often feel meeting families is the, the bravery that families show every day isn't always matched by society as a whole and the medical community as a whole. And I think that's a really important thing for us to remember and be inspired by, by people like both of you. Yeah, thank you. And, you know, I think on that note, I would just say that I have been particularly excited as over the last few months, I've learned more about specifically what Genomics England is doing and just the UK itself and, and how well poised it is, um, especially because of the whole genome sequencing effort at birth. But for other reasons as well, including the fact that David Cameron, you know, lost a son to a rare genetic disease and really stood up and kind of brought that to the UK and really showed that this is a problem that's not as rare as it looks, you know, and really kind of stood up for that. And I'm excited to see what role the UK will play in trying to pioneer not only whole genome sequencing at birth, but also what that could lead to in terms of individualized medicines. Um, and I think they're very well poised to to do that. So I'm just very excited to be um, part of this conversation and going to be part of future conversations in the UK with Genomics England and others 
um, just to see, you know, what role the UK could play. So thanks for, for allowing us to tell Mila's story. And hopefully this is just the beginning. Thank you. Yeah, absolutely. And as, as you say, I think this is part of an ongoing conversation and we're, we're really privileged to have you wanting to be, be part of it. And, and we'll try and li live up to your expectations. That would be great. I believe in you. <laughs> Thank you for having us. It's a Thank pleasure. You. Thank you. That's all for this episode. Thank you for listening to this discussion about the G word and for joining us on this journey to highlight and debate the implications of genomics as it comes to the mainstream of healthcare and society. You can find out more about Mila's story and Julia and Tim's work at milasmiracle.org. If you have any views on these topics or have a person in mind you would like us to interview, do write to us at podcast at genomicsengland.co.uk. Remember to subscribe to The G Word on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. And that if you've enjoyed listening, give us a five-star review and it helps other people find out about this series. We appreciate your support very much. Until next time, I'm Rich Scott. See you in the next episode of The G Word. <laughs>